Okay, Exodus chapter 3. Last Sunday evening, we talked about uh, uh, Moses and his response there in verse 4. Uh, the Lord called to Moses twice, and Moses says in the latter part of verse uh, 4, Here am I. And then the Lord t tells him uh, to uh, remove his sandals. The place that he is standing is, uh, is holy ground. And then he reconfirms the uh, Abraham covenant to Moses, which uh, is very interesting. Because So what's taking place here, and I reminded you two or three weeks ago that we're looking now at, at God the lawgiver. Uh, Genesis is God the covenant maker. Now he's God the lawgiver. So he's preparing not to change the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but to extend that covenant with the giving of the law. So God reaffirms his covenant to Abraham as the God who chooses without regard for their goodness. We talked briefly about that. He reaffirms his covenant to Isaac as the God who spares our lives and substitutes himself as a sacrifice. And he reaffirms his covenant to Jacob as the God who bears with us in infinite patience. And certainly Jacob and a number of folks, of course, you and I as well, God is infinitely patient with us. He's a God that never forsakes us, that uh, in Jacob's case, he changed his name to Israel. And obviously he blessed him with that, uh, um, the covenant that he had made there. And then in verse 7, uh, the Lord becomes he becomes more specific about why he's speaking to Moses. So this conversation intensifies, beginning in verse 7, where he says, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up from the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, and that's, uh, I believe, the first time that is mentioned in the Old Testament, in Scripture. To the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So this is a, a startling revelation, I'm sure, to Moses. Next slide, if you would, uh, Tim. So in these verses, 7 through 9, there are, are four truths that God speaks to Moses. And these probably were in the back of Moses' mind, but he's like the rest of us. It, it had been 40 years, in fact, uh, if you st start to look at days, it had been almost 15,000 days since Moses left Egypt. So surely maybe from time to time he thought about uh, his kindred back in, uh, in uh, Egypt. But certainly not all the time. He was, uh, had, had a family, a lot of things that were going on in his life. But God reminds him of his namesake, his, his people. And he says uh, they're oppressed. The uh, first thing, in fact, he mentions it a couple of times in this passage. He then tells Moses, I've heard their cry. Their oppression 
is because they're overworked. They're slaves, okay? The third thing is I know their sorrows. If you think about it for a moment, thankfully we were born into a country where that's not an issue for us, but when you uh, begin to look and see how this unfolds, uh, if they're oppressed and they're overworked, then they are, they are a sorrowful people, and he mentions that to Moses. And then fourthly, he says, I know all of this, and my purpose is to deliver them. I'm not going to leave them there. It's been 400 years or so since they um, migrated from uh, Canaan from their land into the land of Egypt. Uh, they have uh, grown to uh, a great number of people. And now I want you, Moses, to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to lead my people out of Egypt back to Canaan. And he talks about that particular place, the land flowing with milk and honey. Look back to chapter 2 for a moment. <coughs> chapter 2 and verse uh, 23 and 24. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage. They cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. Now, this is 40 years before what takes place in chapter 3. We are, we don't like that. Moses, no doubt, didn't like that. Certainly the Hebrew children didn't like that. But God remembers them, and he is waiting until Moses is, is, is prepared with his sojourning on the backside of the desert, so to speak. Verse 24, God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. Yet, and still, 40 years pass. So, you have... A million, maybe as many as two million people, Hebrew people in Egypt. And you've got one guy, Moses. And the Lord is waiting to prepare Moses to lead millions of people. So this teaches us something about God's focus in the life of the development of you and I. This million or so people, they're not insignificant. But what the Lord is doing is he's preparing a man, and, and as I said, Moses is one of the three great men of the Old Testament. He's preparing a man to take his children back to their land. So almost 15,000 days had passed, Hebrew children are still in slavery. Pharaoh had increased their labor. He had done this a number of times. Uh, the Egyptians uh, despised the Hebrews. Uh, they disrespected them. And so now the Lord is beginning to call and prepare Moses for what lies ahead of him. Turn to Job 23. Job 23. 
Job here is responding to one of his accusers, and this, uh, this particular one is Eliphaz, and he answers Eliphaz. Um, in fact, Eliphaz closes out his solilo- soliloquy in verse um, t- 30 by saying, of chapter 22 uh, by saying, He will even deliver one who is not innocent. Yes, he will be delivered by the purity of your hands. So this accusation is, uh, you make yourself to be self-righteous, Job, but really you're not. And then Job answered and said, chapter 23, Even today my complaint is bitter. My hand is listless because of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. Now this is a reference back to the Hebrew children. We don't hear Moses crying out for God. But God did hear, Yahweh did hear the cry of the Hebrew children. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in his great power? No, but he would take note of me. There the upright could reason with him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. Look, I go forward, but he's not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. But he knows the way that I take, and when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. So Job, in his anguish, uh, is writing about his thinking that the Lord had forsaken him. And surely the Hebrew children thought this. But the Lord had not forsaken them. He was waiting to develop Moses. Now look at verse 10. Go back now to uh, Exodus 3. Come now, I'll send you to Pharaoh, and you'll bring my people, the children of uh, of Israel out of Egypt. And again, they probably could, in, in all of this tremendous scene that's taking place, the burning bush that's not consumed, or literally burning bushes that is not consumed, the theophany that he sees from the burning bush, the speaking of Yahweh to him, and I'm sure he's thinking, this thing is marvelous. In fact, he says he turns aside to see what's going on. The Lord says, take your, your shoes off. Moses then becomes uh, uh, fearful. Uh, he was afraid to look. He hid his face and he was afraid to look upon God in the latter part of chapter 6. And now the Lord says, hey, Moses, the reason I'm here is because your life is not more important than my children that are in Egypt. Sometimes I think we forget that. We are important to the Lord in our dedication, in our salvation, in our sanctification, but we are not more important than other believers. And so the Lord speaking to Moses here, Moses, I'm sure he's 
Uh, in fact, verse 11, look at verse 11. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Are you, are you nuts? What is wrong? Are you crazy? I have not been in Egypt for 40 years. And the last time I was there, Pharaoh sought to kill me. Uh, you've probably seen, uh, you know, the Prince of Egypt with cartoons and you've seen maybe the Ten Commandments and there have been a number of movies that have been made about what's taking place here. And, and the thought is that Moses goes back in the Pharaoh that he's done. We'll talk about that when we come to, to uh, the confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh. was was probably his, um, uh, one of his near near Egyptian kinsman. He would not have been a stepbrother or whatever. He would certainly have been uh, the offspring of, uh, of the Pharaoh that sought to kill Moses. Uh, maybe, maybe not. We don't know. We'll talk about that when we come to it. But Moses says, I really don't want to go back. And he begins a litany. This carries all the way through chapter 4. In fact, we get to a point in chapter 4 where the Lord tells him basically, you either shut up or I'm going to kill you. So, you know, the Lord is patient. We talked about the patience. The Lord is, is loving. The Lord is merciful. But there comes a point when the Lord says, hey, I'm God and you're not. And so this is what you are commissioned to do. Uh, so Moses says, who am I? And in verse 14, the Lord says, I am who I am. So Moses is questioning who, who he is before God, and God makes that very plain to him that this is not about you, Moses. This is about the power that I have to deliver my children. Next slide, if you would, brother. <clears throat> so in verse 7, he says, I know their sorrows. And in Isaiah 53 we are told that Jesus is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So when he speaks to Moses about sorrow, it is a prophecy about what's going to take place in the person of Jesus Christ. Always remember, when you're reading and you're studying in the Old Testament, it is still the revelation, it's the pre-incarnate revelation of Jesus Christ. Yes, it's important this conversation is taking place. But what God the Father, what Yahweh is teaching Moses is, okay, I know their sorrows, but I'm a man of sorrows and will be acquainted with grief. And in verse 8, he says, I've come down. And again, a foreshadowing of what's going to take place when Jesus comes down as the incarnate Son of God. In about 1,500 years from this particular point, 14 to 1,500 years, God the Son would humble himself. He would condescend to become incarnate, and he would dive headfirst into our sorrows. And he did this willingly because he loved us. And then he says in verse 8 as well, I'm going to come down so that I can deliver them from the hand of the Egyptians. Now the word saved, to save, being saved, 
is the word, is the, is the Greek word sozo, and it simply means to be delivered. When we say that I'm saved, it means that I've been delivered. And we talk about this often, this delivered from the wrath of God to come. We will see in the next few chapters as all this plays out, <laughs> we will see that God's dealing with Pharaoh and he's giving him an opportunity to be delivered. But Pharaoh, obviously, we'll see he hardens his heart. And we'll talk about that because there's some marvelous verses that we're headed to in the next few chapters here. So I'm going to deliver them. I'm going to save them from the Egyptians. Now, Egypt at this point in time was still probably the most powerful and richest nation on earth, at least in this particular region. And being in Egypt, though it protected when they initially left Canaan and came with um, Jacob and the 70 that left Canaan, it was something that needed to be done. Joseph obviously was the, the prime minister. He took care of his, uh, of his brethren. But at uh, the very end of Genesis 50, Joseph dies. And we read in the first part of chapter 1 of the book of Exodus, it says there rose up a king that knew not Joseph. And so Egypt had taken a debilitating toll on the Hebrews. And it intensified year after year after year. And so what the Lord had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he reiterates to Moses here, he's going to take care of the initial covenant that he made. Hundreds of years have passed now, but he still has not forgotten. That's why these covenants are unilateral. God is making them, and because he is making them, he'll follow through with them. Verse 10, he says, I'm going to send you. Now, Moses was... In fact, in the book of Hebrews, he's called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, and said, basically, he didn't want to be called that. But he's, been, he's being transformed, or had been transformed now, by about 40 years of desert life. He now is a Midianite shepherd, and probably a good one. Very intelligent man. Uh, very strong man. He was comfortable. And God will often call us out of our comfort. God has no qualms about disturbing our comfort. There are times when God will make us very uncomfortable in order to accomplish his will. So he settled down to be Jethro's son-in-law. He lived a modest life in humility for scores of years. He left the power and prestige of Egypt behind him. But on the back side of the desert, God found him, and he shocked him. Sometimes that's where God finds us. And often when he does, it's shocking to us. So I'm going to send you, and Moses, of course, is, is disturbed by that uh, remark. Next slide, if you would. <clears throat> so God met him in desert with a vision of a burning bush. He didn't meet him in an, in an Egyptian palace. He did not come down to
to confront Moses in his wealth. He condescended to confront Moses in his ignorance of what God was preparing for him to do. So we don't think, in fact, if you go through this, the passage, I don't think Moses was a coward, okay? We do know that he was, he was meek. In fact, turn with me to Numbers chapter 12, and perhaps he is being meek in his response, his meekness is coming out in his response to Yahweh, but look at Numbers chapter 12. Verse 1, then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. Now, this is um, his uh, Midianite wife that we have here recorded in, um, uh, in Exodus chapter 2, Zipporah. He, she dies, and so Moses is at liberty to marry, and he does marry an Ethiopian woman. And so they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. I think the old King James says was very meek, and it may be that way in the ESV. So there's a, a confrontation that takes place here between the brother and the sister of Moses, Miriam and Aaron, and obviously, the uh, verse 9 says, the anger of the Lord was aroused against them, and he departed. He basically tells him, he, he says, my servant, verse 7, not so with my servant Moses, he is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly and not in dark saying. And he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So, I don't think that we're seeing in chapter 3 or chapter 4 the fact that Moses is a coward. I think we're seeing that his thought is that, okay, for 40, I'm, I'm, un, I'm un, unprepared. I'm not, I may have had those skills years ago, but I'm unprepared. And that's why this uh, grand litany that takes place here. Um, Moses is like... Um, Moses in his young age, very much like Peter. Impetuous, killed an Egyptian. You remember Peter, when Judas betrayed Christ, took out his, his, uh, his knife or his basically short sword and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Very impetuous. But that impetuousness had left him. He's now 80 or so years of age. He no doubt communed with the Lord with sacrifices during this time when he was in Midian. And he'd mellowed during all this time. So now he's trying to get his, his feeble brain around this. And look at verse 12 of Exodus 3. And the Lord said, and he said, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. Okay, he says, listen, I'm I'm sending you to bring my people out. And then he says, and when you have brought them out. 
Now, there's a lot happens between I'm sending you to bring them out to the fact that where the Yahweh says, and when you have brought them out. A lot of things happen then. He says, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain, on Mount Horeb, on Mount Sinai, where the lawgiver gives the law. So shepherding had chastened him. As a younger man, he was overconfident in his ability to to affect himself as a leader of the Hebrews. Uh, And uh, if you look at verse 11 of chapter 2, we're told... (laughs) Of course, talk about his impetuous nature. Uh, He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. He looked this way and that, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. So very much like Peter. A lot of God's men, Old Testament, New Testament, are very, very similar. Uh, David had some impetuous uh, times in his life as well. And yet God continued to use him. Turn with me to Acts chapter 7. This is Stephen's sermon. Stephen, one of the first deacons. Look at verse 22. And Moses, and we're not going to read all of this, but... uh, Verse 20 says, at this time Moses was born. So Moses becomes one of the central characters in the sermon by Stephen. Uh, verse 22, and Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now when he was 40 years old, he came into his heart to visit his brethren and the children of Israel and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. So Moses did have these visions of, uh, uh, of being a superhero, supposedly, when he was a younger man. But notice what the scripture says. But they did not understand. And they said, you need to leave. The next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile. And he said, men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he... Uh, but he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you ruler or judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? And at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when forty years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. And when Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he drew near to observe the voice of the Lord God came to him, saying, and he reiterates the, the um, covenant again. And Moses, the end of verse 32, Moses trembled and dared not look. And there's quite a bit more here about uh, Moses as well. But the thing I want you to see is that Moses had remembered enough of what took place in uh, Egypt and he understood that if he went back to Egypt, there was probably still a price on his head. So obviously he wasn't eager to jump into what the Lord had uh, called him to do. And then the Lord said, I'm going to, of a certainty, I will be with you. And that's vitally important. We're going to close there this evening. Of a certainty, I will be with you. Now, all this is in the back of Moses' mind, and he goes through all of this, (laughs) this litany here. And we see that 
uh, miracles that God performs to convince Moses and he still uh, hangs on for dear life, as it were. Any comments or questions on what we've covered this evening? <coughs> Let's pray. Father, we thank you this evening for the word. We thank you for the testimony of Moses. We thank you, Father, that he uh, was the great deliverer, the one that you chose to lead the Hebrew children from Egypt back to the land of Canaan. Father, we know that he was certainly not a perfect man. He was very imperfect. But in your patience, he became the leader that you intended for him to be. And Lord, there's much that we can glean from his life here. There's much that we can, that, uh, we can hide in our hearts. But primarily remind us, Lord Jesus, that you are, the, you are the man that Isaiah talks about, the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And so forgive us because we, as sinners, caused you that grief. We pray, Father, that you would abide and be with every person that's here, every family, every couple. Keep us safe that we may come back again and worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name I pray.